Welcome to impactboom.org. We search the globe to find the people, stories, ideas and inspiration to help you create maximum positive impact. Each week, Impact Boom brings you thought-provoking interviews with world-leading practitioners passionate about creating positive social change. These designers, social entrepreneurs, educators, innovators, thinkers and doers share their projects, initiatives, thoughts and insights on creating a better world. You can find all the stories, links and other great content at impactboom.org. Follow us on Facebook or Twitter for the latest updates or subscribe to the newsletter or on iTunes. Thanks for listening to episode 14 of Impact Boom. My name is Tom Allen. I'm the director of Sun Positive and I'm passionate about bringing you the latest interviews and insights to help you create positive social impact. Today we're speaking with Tessa Derkhus, a social innovation advisor and researcher at Kennisland. Tessa focuses on assessing the social impact of civil society initiatives and on elaborating strategies for supporting such projects. Her interest in subterranean politics and how these powers relate to established structures is the starting point for her work. She currently works on the Challenge City of the Future project and the Radical Innovators project here at Kennisland. Before joining Kennisland, Tessa helped design local development strategies for internally displaced people in Ethiopia. She has also worked with the civil society team at the United Nations Development Program in New York and conducted research for the public and private sector in Africa at a consultancy firm, Berenschrott International. Aspiring to contribute towards global justice, she now leverages this experience by focusing on empowering civil society, particularly in the urban environment. So on today's podcast, we'll discuss a range of Tessa's projects, getting insights into how she is using, developing and applying social innovation strategies to deliver positive social impact. We'll hear more about the origins, methodologies and work at Kennisland, and along the way you'll undoubtedly get some interesting ideas and inspiration from Tessa's strong expertise. Tessa, thanks very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. We're sitting in a beautiful room here at Spring House in Amsterdam, close to Central Station. We're looking out, we can see the train tracks. On the other side of the building there's some great views over the river. And it's an amazing place to work, I imagine, here at Kennisland, Tessa. Absolutely. So could you please share a bit about your background in social innovation and what led you to working here at Kennisland? Well, I never really aspired to work in social innovation because it's such a broad term that's Mm. very hard to grasp. But my background lies in anthropology and political science. uh, And I've always been driven by this urge to, on the one hand, understand people's lives and to step into their shoes and to see how they eat, how they think, how they talk Mm. and on the the other hand to understand uh, larger global phenomena such as inequality and and sustainability Mm. and how they affect people's lives on the ground. So that kind of combination of different skill levels Mm. drove me towards uh, social innovation and city makers and civil society who are trying to work on global issues on a local level. Fantastic and how long have you been here now? I've been working at Kennisland for one and a half years now. Mm-hmm. Excellent. And so what does Kennisland mean and what are its origins? So roughly translated, uh, Kennisland means something along the lines of smarter societies. Kennis is uh, knowledge and yep. land society. 
So we were founded in 1999 as a way to establish the Netherlands as a knowledge economy mm. because there was a whole discussion about should we be like an uh, industrious uh, distribution economy or yeah. should we focus on being knowledge driven. So that was basically why some people came together to start this organization. Yeah, and well, I think we can say that we're pretty established as a as a knowledge economy by now, um, but as an organization, we've we've gone to uh, reevaluate what knowledge means, how power and knowledge relates, and who has uh, the ability to say something, who is acknowledged mm. as being knowledgeable, etc. So that's yeah. kind of how we how we developed over the years. Yeah, excellent. And so, how is Keniston funded? Good question. So we're basically run as a social business, I yep. think I can say that, because we don't have any structural funding which allows us to be independent mm. and we're uh, non-for-profit. Non so uh, basically we do different projects with uh, governments ranging from European Union to a municipal level, yeah. but sometimes we also work with uh, companies like Google or Apple mm -hmm. depending on uh, what goal we have and we want to accomplish and who the best partners are to, to work with. Fantastic. That sounds like a really interesting place to work. Mm. So could you please share a little bit more about your current projects and what you're working on and what are the specific objectives mm. of these projects? Yeah. So maybe something that, that, I, that I should mention is, is like the range that Kennesland works in first. Yeah. Kennesland works on a, quite a wide range of topics ranging from education, uh, the government, uh, cultural sector, copyright, mm. access to knowledge aspects, cultural heritage, and then social innovation as like a uh, something on itself actually mm. and my work focuses on building capacity with civil society and government pr professionals mm. to collaborate uh, more and to really allow the knowledge of, of people in the, in the city to be used for a more uh, just and sustainable society mm. So to make that more concrete, yep. uh, what I'm working on right now is the European Social Innovation Competition mm -hmm. with the European Commission and uh, Nesta and some other consortium oh, partners, fantastic. including the Impact Hub. Yep. And what we're doing is we're hosting a call for people to submit their, their projects. Mm -hmm. uh, last year, the theme was uh, Integrated Futures. Uh, we discussed the, the newcomers in, in Europe and how we can best include them uh, in, in society mm. and this year the theme is, is inequality and we're inviting people to submit their ideas for a more equal society mm. and we offer them uh, prize money and an academy and, and coaching um, to make sure that they can develop further develop mm. their, their projects, you know, work on their business models, yep. see how and if they want to scale, communications, etc, etc. Fantastic. So that's that's one example of a project that I work on. And Sounds like a good one. Yes, it's really, really good. But what I do also like is in other projects is where you also get to collaborate with parties in the, in the environment of the city makers mm. so as to not only make social innovation something that civil society should do but also something that the government should do and to really work on that ecosystem yeah. of those different parties uh, working together. Mm. So that's what we're working on right now in Amsterdam for instance. Excellent. 
So Amsterdam won uh, the iCapital Award. Yeah. Uh, they're officially the innovation capital of, of Europe. That sounds a bit cocky, but it's it was like a money prize that was awarded by mm -hmm. the European Commission. And we're now working with the municipality and other partners to, to again, create a program in which we work on, on that collaboration between civil society and the, the municipality. Mm, fantastic. Yeah. Well, so. You've got a lot, a lot to get your hands around. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> mm, fantastic. So what sort of processes and, and methodologies do you guys use here? Mm. And like with each of these projects, which are those ones that you couldn't live without that you would recommend to other people working in the social innovation space? Mm. Well, something that Kenneth learned uh, I think is really known for mm. is the, the feed-forward methodology that my colleague Merlika Kibom uh, developed with, uh, with other colleagues here as well. And well maybe to call it the holy grail is, is a bit much <laughs> but it's really, <laughs> it's really something that I know has, has also helped a lot of other people in, in guiding social innovation processes and um, basically that methodology is, is uh, focused on collecting uh, stories mm -hmm. from, uh, from people yeah. in your project so we use it a lot in our social labs to first define the issue that they think is uh, is most pressing in their in their neighborhood and then to with them and other stakeholders ranging from the housing corporations to people working at the municipality uh, or other services in the in the neighborhood to with them collect those stories and see what motives there are and eventually what prototypes can be developed to address the the issue Fantastic. so that's yeah we we've written quite a lot on on that methodology as well mm. and i think that's really something where we came to the conclusion that qualitative research and, yep. and like these more anthropological methods of collecting stories really uh, are needed in this time in which mm. often quantitative analysis kind of push away the, the human story yep. uh, off the table and which gives it very one-dimensional wow. image of the, of the issue. So looking at the Kennisland website, I had a look earlier and it was stating that civil society is a contentious subject but that it can be considered to be the grey area between the government and the private sector. So, um, this is basically where communities of citizens are linked by common interests and collective activity. So, what do you believe are the biggest challenges when assessing the social impact of civil society initiatives? Well, I think, well, there's, that's, that's a whole mouthful. I, I, th I wrote that down. It is, it is contentious because there are a lot of different uh, definitions. Yeah. So we just, I just chose this one. You can either look at, at assessing the impact or merely to the initiatives themselves, mm. obviously. If I think about what, what the biggest challenge is for, for civil society and social innovation uh, initiatives in the city right now, I would say that there is a bit of a threat for us as civil society mm. sector to sometimes consider ourselves a bit too apolitical and a bit too ahistorical mm. and not really embed ourselves in a, in a bigger movement to have systemic impact. Mm. And that's something that we as, a, as an organization are also considering because we've seen a lot of great, really brilliant examples of social innovation in our environment, mm. but then, you know, they're really cuddled and they're, everyone's really raving about them, but then when push comes to shove, there is no way to, to make it sustainable because yeah. no one really wants that systemic change uh, to actually happen. Mm. So 
I think that that's something that I really want to want to put on the on the agenda is how can we make sure that social innovation and civil society is less dispersed and, yeah. and more more embedded in like a bigger movement especially considering the, the issues that we that we're facing today yeah. Oxfam who just published that eight um, wealthy men have as much wealth as I think half of the half, popula- yeah, population so if you re- want to read about these things I think you know as now that social innovation we're really maturing I think we should really make sure that we become a bit more political and more embedded historically and, mm. and referring to other movements in, in the past, etc. Yeah. So that's my ambition as for the, the challenges. When it comes to assessing their impact, mm. I think that something that I see is that there are a lot of impact measurement tools coming up also from, from the government side, which is of course great because they have to be accountable yeah. and show people what they spent their money on mm. and what their impact was etc cetera, etc cetera. but it's still very hard to go beyond the economic benefit that yeah. uh, social innov- innovation initiatives produce sure so to 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 really give value to to things that maybe are not easy to quantify you know that's like a a dilemma that that the entire sector in the netherlands is is struggling with mm. i think worldwide yeah Absolutely. Okay, so you've seen a shift in social innovation. So where do you see it heading now in mm. the future? I mean, you've tackled a little bit of this in your response just now, but mm. do you see any clear sort of direction? Well, I'm very pleased to see that governments in the European mm. Union Union is very eager to, uh, to to focus on social innovation. I mean, there's in the Horizon 2020 programs, which is, were very big funding programs here, there was a lot of uh, focus on, on social innovation. So uh, that, that, I feel like it is kind of being adopted in, in like mm. big institutions. The way it is adopted is sometimes a bit contentious because often it is also considered as a way to increase the productivity of a country and, and, and again to mm. see it from an economic perspective which obviously is not the the actual goal mm. for us as to where i see it heading well yeah i think I, I'll, I'll stick to to what i said with regards to the sector maturing and hopefully becoming more more outspoken and and taken seriously considering uh, like all the the movements you see with rising populism mm. as well yeah. and and how social innovation is needed mm. is necessary to, to to deal with that in the introduction tessa i spoke a little bit about your work with the united nations development program so could you please tell us about some of the key learnings you took from that time huh. in working with them in new york so i interned at the civil society team of the united nations development yep. program and again, because I was really pulled towards the, the dynamic of, of a global institution working with locally based civil society uh, base. But what I remember very well is that the civil society input rounds were always from 8 a.m. to 5 to 9. And then people would come in at 9.05 and be like, who are these people? Like, mm. I mean, like the, the actual, actual government representatives. It was like more of a, of a formality, basically, mm. you know, all these like input groups. And, and I mean, it's great that it's there, but like a key learning, I, I think, really was that you need to embed like the, the collaboration with civil society early on in, in the process. Mm. And obviously the UN is, a, is an intergovernmental 
organization, but uh, if, if country leaders, you know, uh, have it in their their DNA or in their uh, working processes mm. to, to work with their communities and civil society, that's much more useful than having a civil society base at the UN uh, that's very skewed because only big wealthy organizations that can afford to be there are yeah. represented most mm. of the time. Yeah. So. That's like that was a key learning for me to really go back and and study and, and learn how mm. on, on a more like a city level you can develop that strategy of, of, of integrating civil society and, and citizens into the, the decision making process. Yeah, fantastic. I mean, you have written quite a number of articles or a number of articles on smart cities, on open data and city makers. So in your article, which is titled Who Owns the Smart City, could you tell us a bit more about what the research discovered? Yeah, so what I argued in that article is that what I see in the in the smart city is a repetition of of something that's happened very often and what you've, you've seen in like modern modernist architecture and basically that there are a lot of decisions being made in setting up the whole concept that are not democratic or accountable. So what I mean by that is that I'm very, I'm very critical, critical of the term, and I was a bit frustrated basically mm. because one case study that we use in the in that article is is a lighting program, a smart lighting program in Eindhoven, mm-hmm. which is a city in the Netherlands, really eager to be a smart city, and you know it's really hailed as a, as a as a perfect smart city project, but you know here we were asking these questions like why do you want this lighting in the first place? Who is it going to benefit? And what if there are like, you know, uh, guerrilla artists that mm. want to revolt? You mm. know, there, you, you need all these like considerations before being able to say that something is a success. While they were like, you know, this is a great success. We, we even had all these meetings with like uh, communities. While, whereas, you know, people coming to these communities were all like digitally savvy yuppies most of the time. So that was really our starting point for for talking about, you know, the argument that Anthony Townsend mm. also has uh, really elaborately uh, discussed to see, you know, uh, if you're gonna make these decisions in the smart city, who are they going to benefit? Like, do mm. you just want to serve like the the middle class consumer who can get to work faster, or do you really want to solve the mm. tough issues yeah. in the city? And more and more is, is based on algorithms and data collection who is accountable for the results of, of those calculations. Yeah, yeah. So I'm personally, I'm still a bit unsure as to whether I, I want to keep on engaging with the term because, you know, you can say that, you know, smart city also is very inclusive and mm. also wants to be democratic. Yeah. but. I just see it as a term that's been hijacked by big companies and that are making a lot of money off it and hopefully even ensuring that profit in the future by Mm. very savvy uh, contracts that are being installed. So Mm. I think it's important to to be critical of it, but on the other hand, I don't know whether to you know reject it or whether to be like, wait, guys, social innovation is part of the smart city. Not sure yet. Oh, there's some interesting reflections, that's for sure. So in terms of other countries, I've seen over the last few days here in the Netherlands, it seems like there's some fantastic initiatives. But beyond the Netherlands, who do you believe is really leading the charge when it comes to social innovation? And what are these countries doing that we in Australia, in the Netherlands, in other countries can take? Mm. 
But what can we learn from that? Well, I think it really depends on the sector as well and mm. on whether it's the, the government that's taking the lead or more, um, or rather, like citizens. So, for instance, if you look at Nordic countries where they're uh, really, you know, going to start with these big experiments of basic income, etc., I definitely say that that's really impressive and mm. they're really in the lead there and yeah. and things like shorter working days and, and how that affects health etc etc yeah. so i think the governments are are being quite progressive there mm. but if you look at for instance i was i was in berlin last year for the european social innovation competition and i was really amazed by everything that that's happening when it comes to the social innovation and newcomers mm. and those initiatives aren't close-knit with the government at all, they're really operating by themselves, yeah. so out of need, obviously. Mm. So I really admire like Berlin and, and the scene around uh, newcomers and things that are, that are popping up there, like yeah. for instance the Migration Hub, which mm. is a great uh, example of uh, an initiative that's now also being replicated in, in other uh, countries yeah. around the world and that are really well, the name already kind of implies it, they're yeah. really a hub and uh, center. And the think tank also to uh, get social innovation for newcomers mm. ahead. Great, well, there's been some really nice insights. Mm. So could you recommend a few really interesting books or resources that you think would be inspiring mm. for the listeners? First of all, I think I think I should definitely mention the Feed Forward uh, methodology mm. that I already mentioned. So yeah. that I think uh, there are a few interesting publications on our website like lab matters and lab practice that are definitely worth uh, a read. Mm. And then another book that I'm reading right now, which I think is very inspiring, is Think Like a Commoner uh, by David Bollier. And it's something that I'm personally very interested in as well. Again, like if you want to make uh, social innovation more embedded in, in a history, I think the, co the history of commons is something that already has seen a lot of you know, different experiments with organizing uh, for social change. Yeah. So there's yeah. a lot to learn there. So mm. I'm trying to, to educate myself by reading that. It sounds like a great read. Tessa, I've really, really appreciated your insights and time today. So thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to Impact Boom. You'll find links to the initiatives, people and resources mentioned in this podcast on impactboom.org. Please leave your comments below and remember we'll be publishing fresh inspiration and insights to help you create positive impact every week on the website, Facebook page and Twitter.